it was a very simple call that we find at the very beginning of our text today, which is in uh, Revelation chapter 4. It's a call <clears throat> to uh, come up here. That was the call. Come up here. And you know that you know, simple call makes all the difference in the world. Especially when you're feeling down and, and you're struggling to put one foot in front of the other. And your faith is sort of taking a big hit. Sometimes we, we do struggle in our walk with God, and, and we found this out in the seven churches, which pretty much typifies our walk today. The seven churches of John's day can represent God's churches throughout the entire age, Christian age, all the way to the very end, and all the way to the renewal of time. The seven churches shows us that uh, um, we're not alone in these, in these struggles. And Jesus understands our difficulties. And as we saw last week, last Sabbath, He pursues us, even in our worst condition. He pursues us in order to encourage us to, and inspire us to greater heights of obedience and greater heights of faithfulness to Him. But it's very hard to inspire people, especially when they're feeling down. And, and so we ask ourselves this question, what does it take to inspire us, you and, you and me, to keep on living victorious lives for Jesus? And this must have been on Jesus' mind as he, um, as he um, surveys the scene in his struggling churches and he sees every single church has its own problem. Um, and every single church is dealing with difficulties and trials in, in their lives. What does it take to inspire a church to not give up despite the difficulties of life, despite the trials and the temptations that come our way every single day? And so this is where we find ourselves today in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, two chapters that are meant really to inspire you and me to greater obedience and greater heights of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And I know there are so many things that if we, you know, if we zoom in um, uh, on these, these two chapters, we find so many details, and we're not going to do that so much today. We're going to step back and look at the panoramic view that this text provides us. I want to take you through several slides here as we, as we give ourselves a little bit of a context as to where we are in our study of the book of Revelation. In the book, the book of Revelation, we could say that the book has a two-part structure and a bridge in between. And that structure can be found in, um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. In that phrase, which says, which reads, Write, therefore, what you have seen. What is now, that is what was present in the days of John, which could also represent the entire length of, of the Christian era, but what is now present in his day, and then what will take place after this. That's the two-part structure that we find in the book of Revelation, and as we look at Revelation as a, um, as a continuum, as, as, a, uh, as a, a time continuum, you see that Revelation 1 to 3, generally speaking, represents those uh, the time that is described as what is now. And Revelation 6 to 22 represents that time which will take place after John's day. That is the time in which we live in and beyond. Where is Revelation 4 and 5? Well, Revelation 4 and 5 is right in the middle of those, acting as a bridge, if you please. A bridge between what was then and what is now. And the, and the great thing about this bridge is that it, is, it, it provides us with a perspective that is uh, unique. And it is a perspective that, that we find as John is uh, invited by Jesus Christ up to heaven in a vision. And from there, from the throne room of God, he's able to see 
God shows him, first of all, his throne room, and he shows him everything that is to happen right from the nerve center of the universe. So that is what is so important about this, this text. As it gives us a new perspective or a, a, a bigger perspective, it, it seeks to inspire us to greater heights of obedience in our age to Jesus, to, to Jesus Christ. So we ask this question once again. What does it take to inspire us to live victorious living? Before we start answering uh, that question, we go back to Revelation and reveal to you a little bit about the structure of this book because now we are finished with Revelation 1-3, to which happens to be the first in a seven-part seven part drama across the entire length of the book of Revelation. Let me show you what it looks like, what this drama looks like in general terms. If you look at uh, the letter X, which in Hebrew is the letter key. You will see that if you reach that, that point where th those two diagonal marks meet, that is where we would find the, uh, the, the, the climax or, or, or the center, uh, the gist of the, of the entire book of Revelation. Normally, when we read books, we normally, sometimes, you know, I cheat and you know, if I want to really know what the book is all about, what I do normally is look at a table of content and, and read the table of content and see and, and outline the outline of the book and, and see how the book progresses across, you know, the length of its, all its pages. And then what I do is I, I cheat and, and I go to the very back and read the very ending of the book and see how it ends. And then everything bef uh, between is just gravy. <laughs> That's how I've learned how to prepare for tests whenever I, I read uh, books that have to deal with, you know, the area in which I, I, um, uh, I specialize. And I'm sure many of you have done that or do that as well. But in the Hebrew mindset, there is a mindset in which, you know, it is a, it's a very different mindset that, than what we're accustomed to because it is not the ending that is really what matters most, even if it is also a very, very important. It's what happens in the middle. It's, it's what happens in the middle. And so we find here that the book of Revelation really is a seven-part drama. And we just finished, we just finished uh, going through the first part of, the, of that drama with Revelation chapters 1 to 3. And then it progresses. And the next, uh, the next or the second uh, part of that uh, drama is what we are going to be talking about today and next week. And a couple of weeks after that with Revelation chapter 4, all the way up or down to Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And then there's a third part, and I'm just going to go through this really, really fast. And then we reach the apex or the middle part of Revelation chapter 12, chapters 12 to 14. And then it goes on to the sixth. And then the last of that seven-part drama. Another way of looking at the, uh, the book of Revelation, Revelation uh, and looking at these seven um, parts of, of the drama is this. As a continuum, uh, as a timeline, if you please, starting from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the enthronement of Jesus Christ right after he, his, his resurrection, all the way to the renewal of all things when evil has been eradicated, and God starts new with His people and the entire world and the entire universe. You will find the seven, um, the seven parts here sort of drawn out across time. And, and first of all, you find the yellow arrow, uh, which, is, which represents Revelation chapter 1 to 3. The churches, the seven churches of the time of, uh, of, um, of John which actually represents the entire length of, uh, you know, of, of, of history as we know it, all the way to the renewal of, of things at the very end of the days. And then we find second, um, the second uh, part of that uh, drama is that green arrow. And you will see that Revelation 4 and 5 once again gives us that bridge 
that extends a bridge that, that gives us a, 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 a good panoramic look uh, on what was happening in, in John's day and also what will be happening after John's day all the way to the end of time. And you follow that all the way down and you will see, you will, you will have a, a better grasp on how Revelation progresses as we uh, keep studying one chapter at a time. And we will leave it there and go back to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I said a while ago that the, um, the reason why Revelation 4 and 5 is here, found here in, in, in this part of Revelation, is to act as a bridge and also to act as a um, a uh, a place for us whereby we can, we can have a better perspective on what's happening here in our lives and what's happening here in our day. So once again, we ask this question, what does it take for us to be inspired to live, to live victorious lives here on earth? And we find the answers here in, this, in these two chapters. And we find, first of all, the, uh, the first of a three-part answer to, to, to our question today here in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 4. What does it take to inspire us to live victorious living? It takes a higher view of God, of the God of the universe. Um, John's um, experience here in Revelation really mirrors the experience of other prophets that went before him and even after him. That changed their, you know, the thing that changed their, um, uh, their, um, their ministry really is when God shows him a vision of Himself, and somehow when we see God higher than we we actually can envision Him with our own mind's eye, we're able to somehow grasp the enormity and the one, you know, the, the grandeur of of God, and and somehow that is that is able is capable. To, of changing our lives for the better. And so John then becomes a representative. It's as if when John was asked by Jesus Christ to go up to heaven in a vision, it's as if he's taking us with him, and we are there with him as well. Because he wrote about it, and here it is. And we find what he has written here for us to see. And what do we see? that would cause us to be inspired, we see, first of all, that the universe is not just a conglomeration of haphazardly uh, you know, stuff that were slapped together and there's nobody, there's nobody in control of it. That is not what we see here. When we see that the universe ha has a nerve center, and that nerve center is a throne room of God, and, and in that throne room, there is a throne, and on seated on that throne is someone who is in charge of the affairs of the entire universe and by virtue of that is also in charge of the affairs of your life and of my life. It is very comforting to know that there is a rhyme, there is rhyme and reason in everything that happens in our lives. And when we see this, first of all, it has the potential of inspiring us to keep living our lives the way this person wants us to live our lives in this world. Take a look at how, at, at, at what John uh, saw when he was asked to go up to that throne. There are three things, and I'm going to be jumping around here as we as just follow me along in your, in your, in your Bible. There are three things that, that, that we notice as we get a higher view and a better and a, a, a broader view of what God, what God is like in the universe. And I want you to follow me in your Bible as I, as I um, point out three uh, words. Actually, the first two are, the first two are uh, single words, and the last one is a phrase. The first one is rainbow. Take a note, take a note of, that, of that word, rainbow. And then the other one is basically I used a word that is not found in, in, in the uh, in necessarily in that in these verses, but kind of 
pulls together that experience. Um, and that is the word fire. And, and, and I get that from a, a verses five, uh, verse 5, where it says, Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front the, uh, of, of the throne burn seven flaming torches, uh, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne are something like, and here comes the third, the third one, is something like a sea of glass like crystal. What do these represent? What is God trying to communicate through vision uh, to John and by, uh, and by extension to you and me? That what he's trying to communicate is this. It's threefold. And we, you know, let's, let's, um, let's slow it down so that we don't uh, miss it. The point of the rainbow here found surrounding the, the throne of God is to remind us that everything that God does is always, whether it is to redeem us or to judge us or to judge humanity, it is, we're reminded that there's always one characteristic that God has and that He is always good and merciful and gracious in everything that He does. And so that we are not to worry. We are not to worry. When God acts in our lives, and when God acts in the macro stages of this world, in the events of this world, we are not to worry. Because at the very core of this awesome God that is being revealed here in, in a vision is His goodness, His grace, and His mercy. And we find this rainbow, uh, uh, you know, when we, when we think about this rainbow, we, we go back to, to Noah and, and how God shows His mercy to humanity when He saves a portion of humanity so that we can keep going from His judgment. And, and He says, that will be my, the sign for you that how, of how merciful I am whenever I act and when I do things that even you may not understand. And then fire. You know, you know this, by the way, this imagery is, is, can be, uh, is, is, is very much uh, um, based on uh, a, a previous vision that we find in Daniel, and that is in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 15. When you see here, what you see here is, is that, God's in, you know, that God is on the move and He's about to do something. And you see a lot of movement around his throne. And you see lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And you see that God is restless. He's about to do something. And, and uh, we, we are reminded here of that time when, um, when God was about to give his commandments to his people. And, and the, same, uh, the same atmosphere was present. Thunder, lightning, and fire and all that uh, was present on top of that mountain. And so this is what we're seeing here as well. God is on the move. He's about to do something, and, it is, and He is doing something here on earth. And a lot of it we don't understand, and we don't have to understand. But what we do need to understand is that God is on the move for our sake. Always for our sake. And so when we get this vision of God, we are reminded once again that we have nothing to worry about in this world because somebody's got our back and He is awesome and He, and he is powerful and best of all, He is good. In the words of C.S. Lewis, He is not tame, but He is good. And the indication that He is really good and is on our side comes with the, with the third uh, word or phrase when we see what we see here when it says in verse 6, and in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass like crystal. What in the world does that mean? A sea of glass like crystal. There are several, several possibilities, but I like the possibility that's given us here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 8. I'm going to go there and follow me along with you in your scripture. Here we, the context of this verse is that it is found with, 
within that. Song of Moses, remember when Moses and the Israelites, when they crossed the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Red Sea in miraculous fashion. And by the way, it wasn't just a, uh, you know, a pond that they crossed. It was the sea, the Red Sea. And, um, and you know, from we watch from the Ten Commandments, you know, I, I remember watching the Ten Commandments years and years ago when I was just a little kid. And I was so awed by that, the sight of two walls of, you know, of, uh, of water on either side of, of you know, of the, uh, the Israelites as the Israelites were passing through and on dry land, on dry land across the, uh, the, that sea. That is partly accurate. It's not altogether accurate. In Exodus 8, uh, 15, verse 8, Exodus 15, verse 8, reminds us or fills in the rest for us. Here's what it says. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. That part we understand. The flood stood, stood up in a heap. We understand that part. And this is the part that we don't really, we, we, don't, we, we skip. Where it says, the deeps congealed. That's a, uh, that's a uh, Merriam-Webster word. To congeal means for liquid to turn to solid. Do you get it? For liquid that would be water to become solid somehow. Congealed in the heart of the sea. They didn't walk on dry land. They walked on ice. Or whatever that was. Whatever, whatever form of solid, solid that was that God, from which God turned water. Or to which God turned water. And the point of this is we go back to, as we go back to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 6, and as we talk about the awesomeness of our God is this. But you know, in, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament Scripture, whenever, whenever, uh, or, or let, let me back up and say, the sea is often thought of as the habitation of monsters, of demonic monsters. The sea is a restless evil. It's a symbol of restless evil, and the Red Sea is a, is a symbol of restless evil. And what, it, what we're being reminded here, it seems like, in verse 6, is that God is telling us that He is calming the seas. Not only calming the seas and defeating all the evil forces that live in it, Satan's abode, the abyss. Not only is He calming it down, He's frozen it up. A sea of glass, so that it's no longer capable of harming you and me. I can barely contain myself. As I, as 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 the, as, as the implication of that grabs me, we find ourselves in tumultuous waters, so to speak, in many ways. But the promise to us is this: that God has already calmed the seas, has already defeated evil. This is the first thing, the first time we, we have an inkling in these two chapters about Jesus Christ. Because apparently, it will become apparent to us later on in, as we go to chapter 5, that it is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God is able to do these things for you and me. And because the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real, is past event, it's reality. It's not something we look forward to. It's already happened. Therefore, Jesus Christ is able to, to, to take John to the throne room of God and, 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 and picturesque symbolism and remind us, to remind us that in Jesus Christ, the throne room of God looks the way it does. The sea of glass 
is already, is already there before the throne. Subjugated, as it were. Wow. If that does not inspire us, I don't know what will. A higher view of God, of the God of our universe, a God who is good, a God who is awesome, always on the move for our sake, a God who has already and will eventually totally defeat evil based on the victory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is how important the words of Jesus Christ are. When we go back to Revelation 1-3 to and Jesus Christ keeps, keeps reminding us there, he or she who conquer, who, who, who become victorious, I will do this and that and this and that. And at the, and at the very end of it, in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, he, he, he reminds us that, hey, listen, I'm saying this because I've already gone ahead of you and I have already conquered for you. You are more than conqueror in my name. And I want you to live it confidently based on the fact that I am already conqueror. And he says in verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne. And you will see that this throne, this throne that God, that Jesus Christ talks about is the, also the throne of the Father. And they share that throne. He says, he says so here, just as I am, I myself conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So Jesus Christ proceeds in 4 and 5 to show us exactly what that means. And the implications of that for you and me. What does it take for you and me to truly get inspired to live our lives for Jesus all the way? First is to see God the way he truly is. How good and great and awesome he is. And how much he cares for you and me. But it takes another view to perhaps inspire us some more. And that view is a higher view, and that is, the, that is for us to have a higher view of our destiny in God's universe. That's the second one. And the third one is for us to have a higher view of our place in God's universe. Let's talk about the second one. A higher view of, the, of our destiny in God's Universe. There's a, a reason beyond just looking at God and His greatness and His goodness and awesomeness. There's a reason why Jesus Christ called John up to the heavenly throne. And I want to jump down to Revelation chapter 5. Because here we see what I mean. When I, by what I said, that we need a higher view of, God, of, of, you know, of our destiny. Yes, it's true. And, you know, um, we, I say this every time I get a chance to. That uh, we are, um, we have free will and God will never, will never uh, over, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He will never um, force us against our will. So we are free human beings, despite of the fact that we are fallen human beings. And so we can choose our own destiny, so is what I'm trying to say. But that doesn't remove the fact that God has a plan for our lives and has a plan for the life of this earth and of everyone in this earth. And of the universe which he has created. And Revelation chapter 5 reminds, uh, reminds us that this plan is secure in the hand of God himself. Let's, let's read again. Uh, Revelation chapter, one, chapter 5 verse 1. As the vision progresses, John sees Someone seated on a throne holding a, you know, a book in his right hand. Then I saw, it says, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, that would be the Father, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, 
sealed with seven seals. And you ask, what in the world is that? And I believe that this scroll contains God's plan for our destiny. Your destiny, my destiny, and the destiny of the entire humankind. In this book is contained God's plan from the beginning to end and how He's going to renew all things. And by the way, the gist of that book is going to be unfolded for us from here on, from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 22. And this is why Revelation 4 and 5 is so important for us because it gives us uh, a, you know, a starting point from which to view the rest of Revelation, which is basically the unfolding, one by one, step-by-step uh, step unfolding of the, of the plan of God for you and me. And so, he, you know, he says, uh, there, it's, it's sealed from, you know, uh, it, it, it's sealed with seven seals. That is to say that there's nobody, nobody, and, and the, 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 uh, the word, uh, word was, was, was uh, given to all, throughout the whole universe to, to see who could open this book, and nobody could open it. You know, the, the, the good part of nobody being able to open this is that nobody could tamper with it. And that, I think, is part of what is being said here, that this plan is tamper-proof. And God has decreed this plan to happen and He will carry it out. And the impetus and the authority that He has to carry this out is because Jesus Christ has already conquered for you and me and has given, and, and he's, he's about to be given now the right to open this book, to unfold this book, and to enforce this book, to unfold the plans of God for your life and to enforce it so that nobody could gainsay it, and nobody could take it away from you. Uh, Jesus and the angels and, and God, has a, you know, they have a little bit of a fun with John here because they kind of, uh, you know, they <laughs> string him along a little bit. And they ask, you know, somebody asks a question, and the angel asks a question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? No one in, the he in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so John, understanding the immensity of this book, understanding what this book is all about, he begins to weep. What's going to happen if nobody is able to open and to enforce the plans of God for the universe? He weeps bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders... One of the elders, now who in the world are these elders? They're representatives of you and me up there in heaven. I don't know if they're angels or maybe they're part of that crew group that, uh, whom Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead uh, we find in Matthew 25. Uh, I don't know. We don't know that. We can only speculate. But what I do know, what we do know about these 24 elders is that they, they are representative of, of redeemed humanity. We could say perhaps 12 of them from the Old Testament, a perfect number, and 12 from the New, from the New Testament onwards to the end of time. The, you know, the two clear divisions of, of time in, in, in the span of time of God's people. Whoever they are, there are representatives up there around the throne of God. He tells John that not to weep, because he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And what we will find here throughout the rest of the, book of the, uh, rest of the chapters of, of the book of Revelation is the unsealing and the opening and the unfolding and the enforcing of that plan as Jesus Christ opens it one by one. You get to see how methodical things are here and how confident God is in making sure that the destiny that He has decreed for us in Jesus Christ will happen just as He decreed it to be. And because of this, we have every reason to be confident in the way we live our lives and here, here in this world, despite all the difficulties we're going through right now. 
and in the future, in the days ahead. There is no fear. I have no fear whatsoever. However my end may come, I know, I know that Jesus Christ holds the key to my future. And because of that, what can this world do to me? A high view of God is helpful in inspiring us. A higher view of our destiny in God's universe is helpful. But even more helpful, perhaps, is our higher view of our place. What is it really? What makes life meaningful now? What makes life meaningful now? And what will make life meaningful tomorrow? And the day after tomorrow? Do you find yourself sometimes listing in your life, as I do sometimes, not knowing what your purpose is in life, and you're slacking in your faith. We all do. We all go through that. And we were reminded last Sabbath that, you know, don't be scared because, you know, God will walk with you through those deepest valleys in your life and the darkest valleys in your life. He will not leave you alone. He will keep pursuing you. But the third and final thing we want to emphasize here today is that if we have a higher view, if we have a good understanding of what we were really created for, then perhaps we will be able to address all those things that bedevil us when we somehow struggle in our walk, in our faith, in our life. And here, I'm going to take you back to Revelation 4, and I'm going to take you all the way back to the, very, to the middle and last part of Revelation chapter 5. Because it's found in both, in both chapters. What we first find in Revelation chapter 4 is that, you know, there are attendants surrounding the throne room of the throne of God. And the inner core, in the inner core of that, the inner ring of, 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 of those attendants, we find our representatives up there in heaven, our perfect representatives up there in heaven. And then, and then right after that, you have those angelic beings, those four creatures with, you know, that, that look weird, but they look so menacingly powerful um, and, and those things. And you notice what they do. You notice that, you know, uh, and this is not necessarily you know, scientific, but this is really theological. So what I'm communicating to you is how, the, you know, what the theology is behind this vision of the throne. That the universe, if you, could, if you could imagine the universe as a big circle, and that the throne of God is in the middle of that circle, and that everyone or everything that God has created surrounds that throne, and the meaning and the meaning of every single creature could be found in how they are oriented towards that throne. That is to say that in these elders, our representatives, up on the throne of God, you notice that they're all, all oriented, and, and, and even the, um, uh, the, uh, the living creatures, they're oriented towards God. They're surrounding the throne of God, and they find their meaning as they, as they reorient their lives towards God. And more than that, they find their meaning in worshiping God endlessly. You'll find that all the way down to the very end of Revelation chapter 4. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, Verse 8, they cry out, these beings, and whenever these beings cry, these four living creatures, beings, uh, celestial beings, uh, cry out and give glory and honor, verse 9, and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Look what the 24 elders do. As if to, as if to remind you and me that this is what we are meant to do. And that life would really be 
most meaningful when we are able to copy in some small way what these creatures do all the time. This is what energizes the universe to worship God and to give glory to Him every moment of their lives. And yet sometimes I find myself struggling coming to church once a week. And every time they do this, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. And by the time we get to chapter 5, this is repeated once again as, as everybody is singing. Everybody is singing. All those creatures up there in the inner circle are singing. In the middle circle, they're singing. And then in the outer circle, the, you know, the rest of the universe singing all the way down to the depth of the sea. Can you see that? Let's start with verse 11. Then I look, chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the outer circle, the rest of the cosmos, the universe. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on, and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them singing. Boy, oh boy, our, our eyes are really veiled if we can't see these things. Dallas Willard used to say that this sphere of existence, our sphere of existence, this earth is the only place in the universe that God has allowed for these things not to be seen. Because having been fallen from the grace of God, He wants us to choose Him by choice, by our own will, and not to force it on us. But to the rest of the universe that haven't fallen, they see what we do not see. That the whole universe, the whole universe finds its meaning, its joy, and in its, of its existence in turning towards God and worshiping Him day in and day out. Try it sometimes, sometimes. And you will see that life becomes a lot more meaningful when your heart is filled with joy, filled with wonder, lost in love and the love of God and lost in admiration for God. And yet here we are, we struggle, and I wish it were different. I want you to see what happens when an entire people gets inspired and rises above themselves, and what happens. I want you to see that this is possible also, not just in our sphere of existence, but also in, our, you know, in the spiritual realm, in, in, our, in our faith existence. I want to introduce you, you may have already read about this man, about Captain Tom Moore. He's a 99-year-old Englishman and a veteran of World War II. So he lives in the United Kingdom. You know, he celebrates his birthday on April 30, 30th. But before he, he turns uh, 100, he, he thought of, he and his daughter thought of doing something small to help their uh, uh, fight against uh, coronavirus, the coronavirus in his country. And so he gave himself a hundred pounds sterling uh, goal to raise. And the idea is that he would walk, he would run, he would walk uh, 100 laps across his, uh, his backyard, his, his garden, um, behind a, a walker. And they published this and, and he was hoping that, you know, to, to garner a thousand, a thousand, um, donations. 
And so he starts walking, and all proceeds is, goes to their national health service. They call it the NHS. And so he starts, and his daughter Marcus, the idea for, for him on social media. And, um, but, you know, the sight of this old man behind a walker doing this, uh, his laps for a worthy cause electrified an entire nation. And soon everybody is uh, viewing his uh, uh, posts online and him walking and doing his lap and ever so slowly. And pretty soon he exceeds his uh, goal of 1,000 pounds sterling. Pretty soon he's into the millions, 5 million, 10 million, 15 million. And everybody is flocking to, to, this, to, to watch this guy do it. And, and, and they're getting energized with, with this guy and what he's doing. And um, by the time he reaches, uh, his, he finishes, you know, his uh, 100 lap, he had an honor guard to see him, you know, through his last lap. And um, when he crosses the finish line, everybody claps. And he had raised over 20 million pounds sterling. And now he's taken on singing as well. And he sings with a few others a song called You'll Never Walk Alone. And now that song is top of the chart. And so he's earning more money. And so the inspiration keeps going. Watch this video for a couple minutes. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. And don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky. And sweet to the song of the lark. When you walk through a storm, Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of the storm There's a golden sky And a sweet silver song Of the dark Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart, and you'll
you so much, Tom. Be inspired. Jesus Christ is trying to inspire you and I to persevere and to keep living the life that he wants us to live, victorious living, despite all the difficulties, to pull together, worship together, despite all our difficulties of doing so, despite the fact that we cannot be together here, and live our lives like all of those creatures that we've seen in these two chapters, who surround the throne and never cease to praise God every moment of their life. For there we find our, the true meaning of life. Father God, thank you so very much that you, we serve an awesome God, a good God, a God who has a plan for our lives and who is executing that plan with confidence in Jesus Christ. We have every reason to be hopeful and to be joyful, Lord, despite the difficult times. Because we know that you have our backs covered. And that with you, our future is secure. In Jesus' name, amen.